Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Revelation 2, starting with verse 18, and the last time we uh, the message was titled, A Tale of Two Churches. So we looked at Smyrna, we looked at Pergamos, and that was really a good indicator of what does the Lord Jesus Christ think about these churches. You know, there was different styles of churches, there were different time periods, different issues happening locally, geographically. So Smyrna was a church from the world's perspective, oh, you guys are poor, you guys have trials and tribulations, but Jesus was saying, you're, you're what I want. You know, you, you have that purity that I'm looking for. So the world persecuted them, looked at them as a negative, but Jesus said, I'm with you. Nothing negative to say. Pergamos goes into the area where Constantine starts to have an affinity towards the church. He removes the persecution. You really should need to get that if you haven't. And the church starts to like this freedom and this coziness with the state and becomes a compromising church. And the Lord Jesus had some very negative things to say about that church because they were compromising the purity of of the gospel. Now, I have to say that I have a lot of friends who don't believe and who love to throw things at me and about Christianity and why this and why that. I actually enjoy it. It keeps me on my toes. But I tell them to listen to the message. Because what you're going to find is the things that you complain about, about Christianity, Jesus also complained about, who's the author of Christianity. There's the irony there. The ones that come to me and say, well, you know, Christmas and Easter, and there's a lot of paganism from the Roman Empire. And I'm like, yeah, and we don't celebrate it that way. There is too much commercialism. There is too much negative influence. And that happened from this period of time where the Roman... um, form of life, this pagan form of life started to creep into the church. And in order not to be persecuted, the church started to accept this this kind of stuff. So what we're going to see uh, today is the church of Thyatira. And what we're going to find is as the Lord Jesus starts talking about these churches, right? From the late first century, he, he looks forward prophetically all the way up until today that it's just the way it is. People are going to get offended because there's going to be some negative things he says about the Catholic Church. There's going to be some negative things he says about the Protestant Church. You know, evangelicals and even our denomination can look at some of these things and go, oh, wow, that burned. That was a little hot. But remember, are we religionists? Are we in love? Or do we think that our denomination saves us? Or do we believe that Jesus saves us? And the answer is the latter. Jesus saves us. So we're going to start to, it's going to get, as we get closer to our time, it's going to get a little uncomfortable for some as Jesus rebukes those churches that have lost that doctrinal purity and that love in favor of an organization, which is what a lot of the unbelievers complain about. And a lot of times I say to them, I agree with you. So as we jump in, we're going to look at this in seven parts and we're going to see remarkable accuracy in these church ages. And when we get close to today, you're going to, it's almost like he said it this morning. So let's check this out. In verse 18, I'll read the whole passage. Now there was, in Thyatira, they did some really amazingly good things. But the leadership did some really bad things. 
And as you watch Jesus talk to this church, it wasn't a monolith. To the good people, he commended them and put no other burden on them. To the bad people, he excoriated them. So this is an interesting church that has um, highs and lows, and the highs are very high and the lows are very low. So we're going to jump into this. He says, to the angel of the church or the messenger of the church in Thyatira, right? These things says the son of God who has eyes. Now he's speaking about himself like a flame of fire in his feet, like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. There's mercy there. And I will kill her children, meaning her followers, right? This is a, a leadership, a, um, a teaching of false doctrine. And in those days, you, you would say that the children, they weren't literally kids, but they were the followers of that person who led this type of teaching. So he says, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give each one of you according to your works. But to you, I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many do not have this doctrine, all those good people, and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have until I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end... To him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, and the potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the biggest issue, is that if you're new to the Bible, especially Revelation, you'll like, he seems like he's in two different streams, the way he talks, and he is, because he's speaking to two different groups. So the first one out of seven is the corrupted church. This is 538 AD to 1517 AD. And these dates are significant. So Thyatira wanted power and wealth. Where Smyrna, that Jesus said, you guys did all good things. I have nothing negative to say to you. Where Smyrna rejected that power and wealth. So the Lord is not happy at all with Thyatira's leadership. And this is the state Roman church. Now, you're going to see that over a thousand years, the churches has gone, the, these churches have gone through ebbs and flows depending on the time periods. Uh, what we see of this church today, thank God, it doesn't have the power it used to have. No church should have command of armies and navies and have uh, ultra-authoritarian power. So the good thing is that this church that still exists today doesn't have those iron-fisted techniques anymore, and that's a really good thing because people from the inside listened to Jesus, and they were trying to be a purifying force, and there was some reform there. So verse 18, he says about himself, these things says the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. So two out of seven is Christ's very unusual description about himself. 
So he gives these descriptions about himself to each type of church based on what their issues were. Some were very encouraging, the way he described himself, and some were, he's like, I'm the son of God. You're not. You know, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Fire represents judgment. And the Lord, with his eyes, could see through the facade of religiosity and see into the people's hearts. So this was a very serious warning to the leadership. His feet were like fine brass, which also, if you look at the Old Testament system and the different metals and what they represented, brass was also a picture of judgment. So Jesus is speaking about himself as the judge to a church because there were some things in there that weren't good. What was the message he was sending? Well, the church was amassing power and acted as God. And they also tried to usurp Christ's mediatorial and sacrificial role in their liturgy. And the Lord was angry. He wasn't having any of it. So remember, somebody could wear a robe. They could have a title of pastor. They could wear, they could have vestments and all this kind of stuff. But when we look at Matthew 23, hypocritical, religious, power-hungry leaders, Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. And that's shocking to some, you know, we can't, we may be able to hide behind religion to each other, but you certainly can't do it to God. He knows better. So how did they get here? What happened? Okay. Let's look at the Roman empire. Now this is, I find it fun. I like history. And what you find is when you go through church history, which a lot of it in the beginning models, the Roman empire, you start to understand what Jesus is talking about here. So Western Rome in in this time period started disintegrating and Rome as a, a power structure started to lose its political power and started to restructure its power shifting into the church of Rome, the Roman state church, which was in Rome. So Rome's borders started to shrink and outsiders were coming in. Rome started to dis- disintegrate from the, from the inside. Interestingly enough, in the East, so there was almost a, well, there was, not almost, there was a Western and an Eastern Roman Empire. And a lot of the political power, they, they also try to shift the political power to the East. Uh, Constantinople was the, um, was the capital. It was called the Byz- Byzantine or the Byzantine Empire. And you see this shift between West and East. And this is significant because the church follows the shift. The way Rome went, the church started to go. And there were uh, religious power structures at some point in the West and the East. Interestingly enough, there was one point in church history where there were popes of the West and the popes of the East, and they both were vying to see who had more power because there could only be one pope. So there would, there would be popes that would hurl anathemas. Uh, the one in the West would say the guy in the East is anathema. The guy in the East says the guy in the West and all his followers. So at one point in time in church history, which is ridiculous, this is why you don't put one man at the top of a uh, ecclesiastical organization. There was one point in time in church history that technically everybody was anathema. They were all accursed, which is, doesn't make any sense at all. So this is what happens when you give too much power. The Emperor Constantine corrupted Pergamos, right, the compromising church in the West, but the Emperor Justinian corrupted Thyatira, which in 538 AD, and you can find this, Justinian gave state power to the Roman church and its popes above all other churches. 
And basically all the other churches had to submit to this state church. Then the persecution started, interestingly enough. Now, here's what's interesting on the persecution side is that now the persecution didn't necessarily come in the old days from pagan Rome. It actually came from the state church. Well, you're not listening to us. And we have ultimate power. You know, the state gave it to us. You have to submit. So the church, the the Christians who are actually worshiping, uh, you know, being born again of the spirit, individual relationship with Jesus, were being persecuted by the state church. So let me just give you a little bit of history in the United States. Let me break it up a little bit. You've heard the expression in the United States, and there's a lot of these groups that just, I believe they're anti-Judeo-Christian and, you know, these groups for the separation of church and state. You know where that comes from? Probably many of you do. In 1801, Thomas Jefferson wrote a letter to the Danbury Baptists in the United States. And he basically allayed their concerns because they remember what happened in Europe. So he calmed their fears and basically said the United States would not have a state church that would control the other churches. It would be freedom of religion. Well, um, 200 years later, you have people today that use that as a bludgeoning stick against Christians. Well, there's a separation of church and state completely taking this letter out of context. As a matter of fact... The early framers uh, founded a lot of our laws and our culture based on Judeo-Christian values. And they welcomed the influence from Baptists and Catholics and Presbyterians to, to help the government to have um, a, a spiritual wing of it to just keep things balanced. So there always was a Christian influence, a Judeo-Christian influence. But today people take that letter and they twist it. They just, the Baptists were just concerned, rightly so, that are you going to pick a favorite religion, Christian religion, and then bludgeon the rest of us with that? Isn't that interesting? History is very powerful because history doesn't have a left or a right. It doesn't have a political bend or a bias. It's just history. It either happened or it didn't happen. That's why I like to put a lot of history in here. So in that time period, Thyatira, as time went on, and they don't happen anymore, thankfully, you found that this, the church forced people to convert, which is an oxymoron. You convert, God has given us free will, so we shouldn't force anybody else to convert. They should do it naturally if they want to. It's their choice. So forced conversions took place, the Inquisitions, right? The murdering of Anabaptists, Hussites, and others that worship differently than the state church worshipped. And again, people that don't know anything about the Lord come to me and go, well, what about the Inquisitions? And I'm like, bro, if I was there, I would be opposing it as well. That is not Christian. And those people who murdered others in the name of Christ will stand before God and they will be judged. So this, hence the two different groups that Jesus is speaking about. As a matter of fact, if you look at John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, Erasmus, and John Calvin, they were all... Catholic clergy, Roman Catholic Church. And from the inside, they said, especially the sale of indulgences to wealthy people, like they could sin all they wanted because they would give more money to the church and then the church would say a prayer. These, these were horrible things that took place, certainly not in Scripture. So these were clergy within, within who were a purifying force that said to the only church in town, you have to stop doing these things or we're out of here. Hence, Protestant, protest, reformation, reform. Two words in there. 
So these were the, the good people that the Lord was talking about, about being that purifying force. Again, to be fair, the church doesn't, again, a thousand years have passed since this church age. It doesn't have the power that it used to have, and that's actually a really good thing. So Thyatira means two things. It means it can mean a sacrifice of works when you translate it. It could also mean a continuous sacrifice, which is interesting because they broke away from the doctrine of soteriology from the Lord Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the way and the truth and the life. I'm the mediator. No one gets to the Father except through me. And the church usurped that role and said, you have to go through us to get to heaven. And Jesus is like, I'm not having any of this. So he's pretty upset. Um, In John's gospel, Jesus said, it is finished. I've paid the price. No more sacrifice and works need to be done for salvation. But we should do it because we want to do it, good deeds and such, right? You have to make sure you've seen which came first. Hebrews tells us that Jesus was the last sacrifice and he was the last high priest. None of those things need to happen anymore. But the church kept this going. Um, So where Thyatira didn't learn from the rebuke of Pergamos, except it doubled down on this this type of doctrine. And Jesus is saying, you're going to have me to deal with if you don't fix this. Verse 19. Now, here's here's the wonderful people in that... You know, you could be at a church, especially back in those days, there were no planes, there were no trains. It was uh, very simple forms of transportation. And this was the only church in town. So you had to make it work unless you moved a long distance. And maybe you couldn't do that for financial reasons. So he says to these really good, solid people in the church, I know your works. I know your love. I know your service, your faith and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. So what Jesus was saying here, and this is three out of of seven, is he is recognizing the really good things that many of the people did in that church. And I will say this too, you know, um, a a brother in the back was just talking about all the things Mother Teresa did and how she gave up her whole life to minister to those that were poor and suffering and sick. And so many people have come out of this church that have done incredible things for the world. You know, uh, built hospitals, um, found cures. So Jesus is saying throughout the ages, you people are awesome. You are spot on. You are living in a way that I would want you to live. You love people, your patience, you have works, you have good works. And I got to tell you, even some in our denomination can learn from some of the collective and aggregate works that some other denominations do. Like they're always helping somebody. Certainly in a time like this, You know, we should be praying, Lord, what do you want me to do in my little sphere of influence? So again, and I'm I'm over explaining because Jesus goes from one verse excoriating to the next verse. Oh, you guys are so wonderful. It, It isn't that he has two personalities. He's speaking to two groups of people. And you can see that in, in churches, unfortunately. So we continue. He wanted to make sure they understood, though, that some of the evil things that were going on could not be overlooked. Verse 20, he says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality in the church and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. So again, even in Jesus's discipline, there's love. There's re- he, Jesus always offers for those of us 
for everyone who goes off on the wrong path to come back, to repent, to change, to change directions and go back to him, go back to purity, go back to a relationship with him. So four out of seven is the Lord's criticism, uh, the Jezebelian practices. Now, last Sunday in Pergamos, the compromising church, he mentions Balaam when we talked about that. For this church, he mentions Jezebel. But they did similar things, sexual immorality and sacrificing to idols. Who was Jezebel? You know, even somebody who's not a Christian has heard that word before. Well, let's just say this, that Jezebel is commensurate today. And you hear the people throw it around. They, they despise somebody. They say, you're like Hitler. It's like the worst thing you could say in our culture. Well, that Jezebel was the female equivalent back in those days. So just make sure you understand that. Jezebel was the queen wife of King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel after Israel split into into two. She was a Sidonian that brought Baal worship into the children of Israel. So you have to understand something here, that this is not, again, Revelation is not a five-minute devotional. Revelation is a very deep book that spans um, millennia. It spans uh, books of the Bible. So some, you might say, man, where's he going? What's Jezebel? What's Balaam? You, you, sometimes you have to listen to it a few times because the Lord wants us to know his word. And when you know his word and you read Revelation, things start to click. You know where it comes from. So this is what's going on with Jezebel. Who is he literally referring to at the time that he penned this or that he had, you know, it penned and sent to the churches? We don't know exactly, but I can guarantee you that Thyatira in her early days would have known who Jesus was talking about. She beguiled his servants or really the leaders. She deceived them. There was this, this doctrine that was coming about. There was this leaders were rising up, men and women, to deceive people. And it was a shame that the church leaders allowed themselves to be deceived. And then a lot of it trickled down into the followers. So no doubt um, in their time, she might have been somebody that saw the Roman practices, right? And said to the church, Kep, keep compromising. You know, you want to be in good with the Romans. You want to make sure you're in their guilds, their trade guilds. You want to make sure that, you, that we can, as Christians, that we can be in this society and not be persecuted. Remember those days? These are all very sly and subtle ways to corrupt the church from the inside. So they started to adopt things. They had very uh, flagrant sexual practices in the Roman Empire. And it's quite possibly to, to, to show your loyalty to the guild or to the government that you would engage in some of these practices, you know, emperor worship, like all these different things. And unfortunately, Jesus was like, whoa, pump the brakes. This is not good for the church. I don't like this. And again, verse 21, Jesus gave her time to repent, but just like the real Jezebel, she refused to repent. When we look at idols, things offered to idols, and again, let's go back to the children of Israel. Remember the golden calf. God was furious when the children of Israel made a golden calf out of the jewelry. And it was, they were, you know, you could almost see the, the good intentions. Be careful with good intentions. People say that a lot. Oh, her intentions or his intentions were good. The children of Israel, Moses was taken a long time on the mountain and they fashioned this golden calf and said, well, we don't know what God looks like. So let's make something that we know 
brings good things in life in the world that we live in. And let's say that that's God and worship it. God was livid. He was furious over it. You don't make a representation of God and bow down to it and kiss it or any of those things. In Thyatira, there were statues in the West. Now, this is interesting because in the West and East Church in the Roman Empire, in the West, they would worship statues. We talked about that last time. They would kiss them. They would venerate them. They would adorn them. Um, in the East, in the, in the Byzantium uh, era or age, they would have these sort of like paintings, but they would be coming out in 3D and they would bow down before the paintings and, you know, venerate them and all these other kind of things. Um, and the church over the years developed relics. People do this today. Oh, I, I went to the Holy Land and I got a piece of the cross. You know how many people got a piece of the cross, so to speak? I mean, you could build Noah's Ark with all the pieces of the cross that people got over the years. Or the, you know, they would bow down, and people still do it. Well, this is where I think John the Apostle was buried, and they would bow down. And, you know, it's like people need something tangible to represent God. So in the church today, in some churches, people do that. You know, they statues, relics, rings, staffs, whatever the case may be. And God said... I'll read it to you. Exodus 20, starting with verse 4. It's right in the Ten Commandments. It's right up top, <laughs> if they're in order here. He says, and he didn't change his mind. He's never abrogated this. He said, you shall not make for yourself any carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. So God is saying, and same thing with Jesus. We don't make a, a statue of Jesus and bow down to it or kiss its feet. It's, it's paganism. That's where it comes from. That's why I'm reading you Roman history. Sexual immorality. If you find me any ultra-authoritarian um, ecclesiastical society, you'll find sexual immorality. You know, when people, and let's just start even with the cults that, that aren't Christian, and they go off to these places, there's always a sex scandal. You know, some of these cloistered society where, you know, they have their own police force, and it's very small, and they, they want to keep all the outsiders out, you find problems there, don't you? Um, when I was young, was it PTL Ministries, uh, Jim Baker, right? That whole, that whole scandal with him and a, a young girl in the church. Um, and it isn't just one denomination. We know that, listen, it's been reported by the Vatican itself, you know, pedophilia scandal. However, last year I read an article in 2019 that there was a scandal that hit the Baptist churches. So we're not picking on one particular denomination. When you have a situation where the leaders say, don't question us. They're ultra-authoritarian. That's why ecclesiastical leaders shouldn't have that much power. Jesus never designed it like that. So you have these scandals that, that creep up. And when you think of sexual immorality, people sometimes think about, oh, adultery. Well, what about children who are the most vulnerable? You know what I'm saying? I mean, adultery is bad, but when you're... And, and these words come up. If you look up the word grooming behavior, 
And sometimes clergy do this to make kids feel at ease. It's really sick and twisted. There's these things that happen in the dark that have happened in churches. And again, my unsaved friends say, well, what about pedophilia? I'm like, that's disgusting. Honestly, nobody should give to any church or parish or denomination if they don't have safeguards to protect the most vulnerable, which are the children. That's sexual immorality, and that's evil, and God hates it. You know, sometimes you got to hit them in the pocketbook for them to decide maybe we should stop doing this. Then they should just do it because they love kids and they want to protect them. So that I'm going to get out of the realm of the Holy Spirit and into my flesh. So I'm going to get off that subject because that really ticks me off. Um, Okay, move on to verse 22. It says, indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation. That's an interesting phrase unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, meaning her followers, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. So five out of seven is the judgment on the tares. Remember Jesus said that the church is pure for the people who are actually in Christ, right? And the gates of hell wouldn't come against it. They couldn't destroy it. But Jesus said... That in every organization, so to speak, of, of churches, that there'll be tares. Satan will sow tares to come in and pretend. They could be leaders. They could be lay people. But, um, and, G- and at the end, Jesus would say, I'm going to separate the wheat from the tares. And the tares will be judged. And they will say, he'll say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Oh, but, I, but I, look, I had a cross. Oh, look, I had a denomination. Jesus is going to be like, nope, I never knew you. You never knew me. That should be sobering for some who are practicing these sort of things. He said they will be cast into a sickbed. This was a, almost a picture of if somebody was dying, when you do the research on it, it was sort of a couch that they laid on and, and, until they passed. So what Jesus was saying is some will be judged even on this earth. Now, if you look at 1 Corinthians 11 and Acts 5, you'll see two instances where there were those that were in the church that died prematurely because they were doing evil things. Fascinating scriptures. You know, today you might find that somebody in a church just all of a sudden passes and maybe we'll find out in the end that they were harboring some very dark secrets. However, even if a person gets away with it here, they will not get away when they face the Lord in judgment. Okay? Verse 23, he searches the hearts and the minds. This comes from Jeremiah 17. You can fool a lot of people in the church and in the media, but you can't fool God. And in verse 22, he says to this church, now this is, again, the two groups again. Watch what he says to the people who are doing good. We're going to get back to that. You know, there's very positive things in here. But I also think that, especially as Americans, we have a sense of justice. And when we see justice not served or somebody get away on a loophole or somebody being wrongfully prosecuted, it bothers us. So let this appeal to your sense of justice. Jesus isn't going to be fooled. He's not a jury. He's not a judge. He's not the media. He is going to definitely find those evildoers. And it didn't matter what position they held. He's going to judge them if they haven't repented. So in verse 22, he says to those in the church, the, the bad group, that, that they were going to go into, the, into great tribulation. And some believe, which I'm, I'm leaning in that direction, that for those that were wicked, 
if this church continues into the, it will be our future, the great tribulation into that time period, that for, for, for the good people there that really trusted Jesus and believed and had a relationship, they would go as we would go, right, in, in the rapture, First Thessalonians 4. But that church, the ones that were doing evil would remain and actually end up in the period of the great tribulation. Remember, because they don't know the Lord. So it's, it's a very fascinating point. And in verse 25, well, we'll get to that. I'm getting ahead of myself. Verse 24, he says, But to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call him, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. Six out of seven is for those who haven't participated in this wickedness. It's like, it's cool. I mean, this is Jesus saying, I'm not going to put any burden on you. I want you to hang on. I want you to be a purifying force. I want you to keep doing that love and sacrifice and, and works. I want you to keep doing those things until I come for you. So you can see the other group gets the picture of when the Lord comes, First Thessalonians 4, and calls his people out of this earth, right? The rapture or the harpazo or whatever you want to call it. So you got two groups of people in that church. When Jesus comes, they're going to come with him. Awesome. We're all going to, those that are in Christ, we're going to, come to be with the Lord as he interrupted human history 2,000 years ago. He's going to do it again. And then the rest of them, and you're going to see, I I believe that, you know, if if the rapture came today, let's just say everybody was in church again, in every single church, there are going to be those that the Lord takes with him. And then the rest are going to be left in the pews or the seats. And the question is, which one do you want to be? I know for me, I want to be with the Lord. You know, I have a relationship with him. He, he says, and we'll get to those scriptures, that we won't go through these hard times. The, the earth is just going to kind of come apart. The revelation judgments, we're going to read about that. It's not going to be a pretty scene in this country or abroad. So I want to encourage you, if you're watching the live stream, give your heart to Jesus today. And you know what? All the negative things that you see here, it doesn't, it's, it's not for you. You know, it's you and the Lord. And that's important. So the Lord Jesus can deal with us as individuals, but it's kind of cool. He can also deal with us as a group. And both of those things are happening. So 24 and 25, uh, 6. Hey, for those of you that are faithful, you're trying to reform the church, you're living by Jesus' teachings, he says, I'm not going to put any other burdens on you. You're doing good. And then he encourages them, listen, I'm okay with you. Oh, and, and, you know, keep hanging on. Keep holding fast until I come. You know, Jesus knows who his sheep are. And the sheep hear his voice, as he says in John chapter 10. And that's a special kind of ministry, and I've seen that when some um, stay somewhere because... They, they want to be, and again, a church, a ministry, a home group, they stay, not because it's great, but because they want to be that purifying force. That is a special, really a special ministry. They act as salt, you know, they're participating, they're encouraging, they're praying with people. And even though a lot of it's gone in the wrong direction, there's a reason why they're there. Not because they, it feels good, but because they feel that sort of like these people, they're staying to be a purifying force. 
You know, when, listen, tears in the church, when I took over this church, and uh, I'll be brief, but the last pastor did some awful things, and he, um, he got a lot of people to come to his church, and stuff was revealed about him, and he left, and I had to be, well, I, I see a little Freudian slip there. I became the interim pastor, and it was tough, and a lot of people did leave, but that was a good thing, because the way it was started was not good. And um, it was interesting that the Lord removed a lot of these shallow and problematic people. And then he gave us the building here. So um, I couldn't see it when I was going through it. I was like, Lord, why am I doing this? And th- the church now is, is wonderful. But, but I didn't see what he was doing until I look back and say, oh, that's what he was doing. God knows what he's doing. He really does. And he does speak to two groups of people. Verse 26. He says, and he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end to him, I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron and the potter's vessel shall be broken to pieces as I also have received from my father. So seven out of seven is the reward. Here's the irony. Here's the irony. Jesus never said that a church should become so powerful that it had the power of life and death over others that it could invade and force conversions. And what they try to do is get ahead of Jesus. Yes, Jesus will set up a theocracy, and I say that in a good way, where the Lord rules on this earth. It's going to be a wonderful thing. No more crime, no more corruption, no more bad politicians. Um, I'm hoping that there's no more taxes either. But, <laughs> but he's saying to those of you that, that got ahead of me and, and you became power-hungry, This isn't for you. What he's talking to is the other group, right? Is the ones that were faithful and humble, and they weren't necessarily seeking power or anything. They just were doing and living by the Lord's precepts. Matthew 5, 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, not the powerful, not the prideful, not the the ones that have uh, big aspirations that get ahead of themselves. He says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But the power hungry, they're not going to inherit the earth. Matthew 23, we see that. So when we look at the Lord coming back in the kingdom age, when we look at the new heavens and the new earth, his people will be put in positions because they're, they're meek, they're humble, they're not looking for anything, but the Lord will set them up. So the irony is the people who were meek in this time period The Lord's going to reward the people who were power hungry. He's going to punish. And isn't that what we want out of our God? Verse 28. He says, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So the morning star is Jesus is speaking about himself. One um, Christmas, I did a message called Jesus is the gift. And I went through how commercialized Christianity has become, how very commercialized um, Christmas has become. And the message was, Jesus is the gift. Stop focusing on the biggest gifts, or I didn't get that gift, or the, what's the one that they do at work where they put everything in a secret Santa? I got, I got robbed, man. Look what she got. You know, look what he got. Jesus is the gift. You know, that's really the Christmas message. And Jesus is saying, you know what the reward is? I'm going to give you me. Now, if any of us said that, that would look prideful. 
and it would be prideful, but this is God saying, I want to give you myself. Um, and I'll tell you something is nothing better than a relationship with Christ. We don't rely on our denomination. We don't rely on our doctrine. We rely on Jesus Christ for everything. So a really neat ending. Ending. The silver lining in all this is that Thyatira had become corrupted. It became way powerful. However, and, and, and you, you can see this sometimes. You know, let's say you're in a professional group and, and they're in the news and they did something wrong and now everybody's painting your profession with, negatively with a broad brush and you're frustrated. You're like, you know, there's a whole bunch of us that are trying to do good and that's not fair. What Jesus was saying is, I see the rotten things that are happening there, but let me tell you something. All you people, thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions, I see you too. You're quiet. You're not making headlines. You're not marching in armies. You're just being faithful. You're praying. You're helping others. Jesus is saying, I see you. And that to me is a blessing because what do we have close to 8 billion people on the planet. For some people, it's hard. Well, Jesus sees me as an individual. How could he see that? Well, he's an incredible multitasker is what I often say. He can see all 8 billion people and what they're doing and still hone in on you and saying, I love you. I see you. You just got to hang on. You know, Jesus said in was, uh, John sixteen thirty three in this world, somebody check that for me. In this world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Yeah, I think that's the scripture. So that's the silver lining. And I just want to encourage you this morning. And again, you're seeing some big things happening in this country. A lot of people are helping. They're stepping up. And you just might be somebody that's ministering to one of your neighbors. You might be somebody that's maybe talking one of your elderly neighbors down because they're panicked. God sees that, right? It, it, that's the beautiful thing about God. You don't have to do something big and grandiose and be picked up by the media. So, folks, no matter where you are, you know, you could be hearing this in Europe. I mean, the video goes all over the place. Um, God sees you. Don't be discouraged, right? Galatians 6, 9 says, let us not grow weary in doing good, for don't you know we will receive a reward if we do not lose heart? So I can see all those messages right at the end where Jesus says that. You could be in the midst of a, I, honestly, our culture is kind of pagan. Our culture is messed up. And you're that one Christian that's just being faithful and being loving and praying. And God sees it. So I want to encourage you also that God also sees through pretense. And one day, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. The goats are not going to heaven. I don't mean the literal goats. Goats, goats are nice. Um, and the sheep, figuratively, um, will be with him forevermore. So I want to encourage you with that, and uh, let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m., and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m., On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages, in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening, and may God bless you.